This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Reverend Dr. Stephen Sizer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. It's a delight to be with you, Jeremy. I'm a 70-year-old retired Anglican vicar. Um, I've been, I was in Christian ministry. I started out with Campus Crusade for Christ as an evangelist um, about 50 years ago. Uh, I then trained for the Anglican ministry, went to theological college, um, picked up a master's thesis and then a PhD part-time during my time in ministry. Um, really had, had uh, incredible opportunities to share the good news of Jesus in Africa, most Central African, Eastern African countries, and virtually every country in the Middle East. Um, because as I developed uh, my interest in the Middle East and what's happening in Palestine, I got in, involved in trying to understand Christian Zionism and why the Western churches side with Israel against Arabs and against the Palestinians. And that really opened up doors within the Muslim world to talk from a Christian perspective that challenges Christian Zionism. So I've had opportunities to minister quite right across the Middle East and other countries. Um, more recently, when I took early retirement, we set up a charity called Peacemaker Trust. And, and Peacemakers is designed to help um, advocate for peacemaking, particularly in parts of the world where minorities are persecuted, human rights are suppressed and so on. Christian Zionism is a viewpoint that believes that God has a separate purpose and plan for the Jewish people and that promises God made to the Israelites in the Old Testament apply to the Jewish uh, people today. It's a dominant view in American theology uh, and in places like South Africa, the UK, Sweden, Holland and so on. Um, and it ranges from what I would call philo-Semitism, a genuine concern to care for Jewish people, um, you know, reflecting back on the Holocaust and the dreadful way people have treated Jewish people. So it moves from that kind of philo-Semitism uh, through political support for Israel today, people like John Hagee, many of the US um, religious and political leaders are Christian Zionists, and it moves right through to what I would call the fundamentalist end of uh, Armageddon theology, apocalyptic theology, uh, that um, isn't welcoming the return of Christ, it's planning the return of Jesus. Um, you know, it sees the world in a dualistic way of the good guys, the bad guys, and the Arabs and the communists and the Muslims are all on the bad bad guy side and America and Europe are on the on Israel's side and therefore God is going to bless us and he's going to judge the rest of the world. It's, it's a very pessimistic, apocalyptic view of the world. What is the difference then between Christian Zionism and Zionism? The difference is, ironically, that Christian Zionism preceded Jewish Zionism by 50, 60 years. Although the word Zionism wasn't coined until about the 1880s, for at least 50, 60 years before then, uh, some Christian leaders, particularly in Europe, were advocating for the return of the Jews to Palestine in the belief that they would go back to the land as a Christian nation. You know, European Christian countries were colonizing the world, civilizing the world, spreading the Christian faith, and they believed the Jews would would come to faith in Jesus and, and be sent back or, or return to the land. So they were trying to facilitate that. So 
we would call them restorationists, meaning restore the Jews to the land. People like Lord Shaftesbury, John Nelson Darby, um, they were the early advocates of this movement. So it preceded Jewish Zionism, which was born out of the, the refugees, the emigres, the, um, the Jews who were suffering in Eastern Europe. They were, they were like the Armenians today, or the Kurds, or the Palestinians. They were a minority, they were persecuted, they were poor, and they kind of got adopted by this Christian movement. Uh, in the belief that God had a plan to return the Jews to Palestine. Today, nine out of ten Zionists in the world are Christians. So today's Zionism is primarily a Christian theology. It's a Christian political movement. Maybe 100, 200 million Christians believe uh, in Christian Zionism, whereas there are only about 20 million Jews in the world today. Um, and only half of them would regard themselves as Zionists. So it dominates Zionism today, but it preceded it, and it is a dominant form of Zionism today. Is there an overlap between Christian Zionism uh, and, um, let's say, US uh, government, presidents, policy, etc.? There is and there isn't. Um, it depends on who the president is. There was with Donald Trump, there was with um, Ronald Reagan, there was with Jimmy Carter. They, they were either raised on this theology as evangelicals, as fundamentalists. They imbibed this theology of God has a special plan and purpose for the Jewish people. He's returning to the land. And our role as Christians is to bless them, support them, defend them, because God will bless us. Others um, um, were more skeptical of that but still supported um, Israel against other nations for pragmatic or political reasons. So there is a link, certainly there's a historical link, if you go back to the late 19th and early 20th century. And during that era of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, there was a, there was a strong link because Reagan, for example, invited Christian Zionist leaders into the White House uh, meeting with political and, and military leaders to talk about the end times, to talking about uh, America's destiny in the Middle East, in the belief that theology and politics mix. What is the Schofield Bible? Well, the Schofield Bible, or the Schofield Reference Bible, uh, was first published in 1917 by Cyrus Schofield, and we'll talk a little bit more about Schofield. It's gone through three or four different uh, editions. There was one in 1945 that tweaked his views, uh, and then there was one in 67, and then the most recent, the new Schofield Reference Bible, 1984. It's a Bible, and uh, it started out with the King James Bible, now it's the New International Version. It's a Bible with footnotes, with uh, cross-references. There are many different study Bibles in the world today. Uh, what, what the Cyrus Schofield Reference Bible uh, is unique for doing is it put alongside the scripture text a particular view of God's purposes for the Jewish people and the church. And we can unpack that a little bit more. It's called dispensationalism. So it was. it's a particular Bible. It's a bit like a Catholic Bible, a Roman Catholic Bible, will emphasize those passages about Mary, for example, um, or about the saints. 
the, the, the danger with the Schofield Reference Bible is it, it read into the text things that were not there. And so it coloured, it's a bit like wearing a pair of sunglasses reading the Bible. It, it colours how you read it by the notes that went alongside it. And because the notes were in the Bible, a lot of, a lot of naive Christians thought it must be inspired. For example, if you look at your Bible, you'll find that there are bold heading, chapter headings and paragraph headings in a Bible. Most people believe they're part of the original. They're not. They were added uh, by commentators to make sense of it. And the problem is sometimes they get it wrong. So, for example, we talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we assume it is the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, but it's not. The word good doesn't appear in the text. It's a bit like me saying, let me tell you a story about a good German. What have I just said? The Germans are bad, but I'll tell you a story about a good one. You see, we've suddenly said the Samaritans are bad, but this one's a good one. The word good isn't in the text. So it's read into the text and we read the passage. We read the parable through that title. It's not part of the Bible but it's been added by commentators. That's a, that's a mild example. The Schofield Reference Bible, it's full of them. And so it has influenced the way uh, the people who own it and use it have read it. In the 50s and 60s, about 50% of evangelicals had a Schofield Reference Bible. You know, they would take it to the church. And if the preacher diverted from the Schofield notes, he'd, he'd have a hard time after the service. So this particular uh, reference Bible became extremely influential. Yes, uh, it did because the circle within which Cyrus Schofield grew up as a Christian, uh, you know, he had very little theological training or background, but he came into contact with a number of other quite well-known Christian leaders, and uh, our viewers may be more familiar with some of them than they are even with Schofield. <clears throat> he was a he was, he was taken under the wing of James Brooks. James was a Presbyterian pastor, a very influential pastor. And, in, and James Brooks introduced uh, Schofield to the views of John Nelson Darby, who was an Irish uh, preacher. He started out Church of Ireland, and then he became one of the founders of the Brethren Church. So Darby was a very influential man in Schofield's thinking. Uh, but D.L. Moody was another very influential Christian who knew Schofield and Schofield influenced him. Uh, and of course, um, uh, Moody was an evangelist and he helped to set up what became known as prophecy conferences, where they were trying to speculate about the end times coming true in their generation. A couple of others, um, uh, William Blackstone, uh, wrote what's called a Blackstone Memorial, which was signed by over 200 influential uh, Christian and Jewish leaders in America uh, in the early 20th century, lobbying the US presidents to assist the Jews back to Palestine and, and enable the Jews to become a sovereign nation again. So Schofield was part of this nucleus of evangelical leaders, uh, D.L. Moody, James Brooks, J.N. Darby, uh, Gabaline, Blackstone. And in that milieu, if you like, his ideas, and he basically plagiarized them from, from, DL, uh, from, from um, John Nelson Darby, um, he popularized these ideas of 
the Jews and Israel being a separate people to the church and God having a separate plan for the Jews apart from the church. The church was God's heavenly people and the Jews were God's earthly people. Um, Darby said, never the twain shall meet. Like railway lines going on into eternity, the Jews would have earth and the Christians would have heaven. Uh, you know, it's an eccentric theology today, but it, again, it came out of the period in American history right after the Civil War when people were pessimistic about the future. Uh, there were the rise of the Adventist sects like the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the Adventists. They were all saying Jesus is coming back in next year or in, you know, in the next five years or, or even pinning it down to a particular date. It was that kind of environment within which Schofield's uh, influence emerges. Is that what you refer to as dispensationalism? Dispensationalism has two elements to it. It really, as a, as a theological worldview, it only emerges in the 1830s. Um, the mainstream Reformed churches, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterian, the, you know, the churches that came out of the Reformation are what are known as covenantal churches. The covenant meaning there's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, Old Testament, law and sacrifice. The New Covenant, Jesus Christ, the cross. One people of God, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. The church in the Old Testament, although it was called Israel, was made up of people of many nationalities, um, not just Jews only. There were many people of other nationalities within the people of Israel. Um, I can give you examples of that if you want to develop that. In the New Testament, the church, again, is made up of many nationalities. The apostles were Jews, but the church soon expanded to embrace Gentiles as well. So one people of God, and we live under the covenant of grace. We're saved by grace through faith for good works. Is that order. So one people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles. And Ephesians, for example, talks about God breaking down the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles. What dispensationalism did in the 1830s, 1840s through the writings of J.N. Darby and others was put back the wall, put back the wall between Jews and Gentiles. And it said God has a plan and there are seven dispensations in history in which God tested mankind and mankind failed. And so he instituted a new dispensation. It, 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 it's, it's a complex theology if you go into lots of detail. Uh, but it basically argues that in Genesis 1 to 11, you've got four dispensations. Exodus is the fifth. So you've gone from the innocence of the Garden of Eden to before the flood, after the flood, Abraham, Moses, the giving of the law and so on. Those are all dispensations. Then you've got a long period up to Jesus. Then you've got the church. That's the sixth dispensation and the seventh is the new heaven and new earth after Jesus returns. Forget all of that because what really marks out dispensationalism is the idea that God has two chosen peoples, Israel and the church. 
and um, they're either going to come back together when Jesus returns or they literally are kept separate from each other, heaven and earth, if you take a very literalistic view of dispensationalism. Sorry, can I ask you a question about that? I, the Jews rejected Jesus when he was alive and they still reject him today. So when you said when he returns, they, they don't see Jesus as returning. Well, okay. Um, you have to accept that there were Jews within the early church and there are Jews in the church today. Jews who, Jews who love Jesus. Jews for Jesus, for example, there are messianic fellowships. They don't like to use the word Christian. They see themselves as Jews who believe in Jesus. So they talk about a messianic church rather than a Christian church. But there are many Christ Jews who recognize that God's purpose is that the church is made up of all nations. So they will join a local church, whether it's Baptist, Methodists. Um, now, the expectation in the church and driven by uh, the book of Romans, for example, and the promises Jesus made was that not all Jews rejected Jesus and God still has a purpose for bringing back, if you like, the natural branches that have been cut off because they rejected Jesus. So there's a belief within the church and in the scripture that there will be an end time revival among Jewish people, that they will come to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Um, so all Israel will be saved, Romans 11. Does that mean every Jew in all time or every Jew alive when Jesus comes back or a remnant? I believe it will be a remnant. Um, you know, God so loved the world. Uh, Jesus died to save the world, but not everyone in the world wants to be saved by Jesus. Not every Jew will recognize Jesus when he returns. So the belief is that many Jewish people will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Jews pray for the coming of the Messiah. They believe when he comes, it'll be his first coming. We believe it will be his second coming. Where dispensationalism went wrong and why Schofield is so controversial, particularly when we look at his disciples today, people like Pat Robertson, uh, uh, Jerry, uh, Jerry Folwell, um, uh, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind books, that kind of thing. They're all disciples of Schofield. Where it goes wrong is when you mix religion and politics. If it was merely a theological worldview, like when people say, are you pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial? I, you know, I want to be on the welcoming committee, not the organizing committee. The most important thing is Jesus is coming back. That's all that matters. And when he comes back, we'll find out what's going to happen next. But where it goes wrong is it starts to plan the end. It plans the end times. So if you believe that um, there's going to be a war, a world war, an apocalyptic war, and Schofield taught that, then every time someone says, oh, we must trade land for peace, we must be peacemakers, we must mediate, our, our fundamentalist friends, our dispensational friends will say it's a waste of time because there's going to be a war coming. So make sure you're on the right side and make sure you've stocked up with your guns and your your three months supply of, um, you know, food and whatever. Get ready for the end. So they're skeptical about caring for the poor, for climate change, you know, things that we should care about. It's, it's a waste of time because Jesus is coming back. So is that why 
Christian Zionists tend to be pro-war? They wouldn't say they're pro-war, but they would say war is necessary and justifiable because the enemies of Israel are themselves genocidal. You know, for example, this is controversial, I know, but they would say, well, Hamas is a terrorist organization because it's dedicated to wiping Israel out. Well, the the most recent Hamas charter repudiates that. Uh, they say that Iran is the implacable enemy of the Jews and that Iran wants to wipe out Israel. Well, the facts are somewhat different. The largest group of Jews in the world in the Middle East outside of Israel live in Iran. They've been there since the time of Cyrus. There are more Jews in Iran than any other country in the Middle East. They're not queuing up to leave. They're not persecuted. Uh, you know, they have MPs. They have, uh, you know, they have a presence within Iran and they're happy to be Iranian Jews. So you have to distinguish between Iranian antipathy for Zionism and what the Israeli government is doing for the Palestinians, settler colonialism, apartheid, you have to distinguish that from hatred of Jewish people. I've never met an Iranian who hates Jews. I do know Iranians who hate what some Jews are doing to the Palestinians. That's different. Okay, so just for clarity then, uh, would you mind just explaining the differences between, let's say, Judaism and Zionism? Sure. Judaism is a religion. Judaism is a belief in the one true God and the belief that God revealed himself through the patriarchs and through the prophets and uh, through the kings, King David, for example. So they see the Hebrew scriptures as inspired. Alongside that, they have their commentaries, uh, the Talmud and so on. But they seek to live um, good lives uh, based on the Ten Commandments and based on the Torah, the, the five books of Moses. Um, and and so Judaism is a religion is a religion. It gets more pro problematic when you try to define what a Jew is, because there are secular Jews as well as religious Jews. So someone who says that they are Jewish doesn't necessarily mean that they're religious or that they're a Zionist. Um, you know, a Jew, a Jew normally would be understood as someone whose mother was Jewish or has someone who's adopted the Jewish faith and become a Jew in the same way you can become a Muslim or you can become a Christian. So Judaism is a religion. Zionism is a political ideology that believes that the Jews have a right to exist as a sovereign nation in the Middle East. The problem is Israel's never declared its borders. It's the only country in the world that's never acknowledged what its borders are. The international community says the borders are the West Bank is Palestine, Gaza is Palestine. We know where Egypt is. We know where Jordan is. We know where Syria is and we know where Lebanon is. And therefore, the bit in the middle is Israel. But it excludes the area that Israel occupied in 67, uh, which should be the Palestinian state. So Zionism is a political ideology that today justifies apartheid segregation, separation between the Jews and the Palestinians. That's why we have the separation wall, which in Hebrew is hafrada, which is exactly what apartheid is. It's exactly the same word, apart hood, separate, separate. So 
Zionism has become, as we see in Gaza, genocidal. Um, you know, that, that what grieves me is that in Israel, um, there is little or no opposition to what Israel's doing in Gaza. Um, it's tragic, but, um, you know, Israelis have been raised on a on, a, on an educational system that separates their lives from Palestinians. And when you separate peoples, that encourages stereotypes, prejudice, antipathy, fear. And that's what we see happening in Palestine today, as a military occupation seeks to annex and take the land away from the Palestinians. So Zionism is very different from Judaism. And as I said, nine out of 10 Zionists in the world are Christians. Yeah, uh, that's something that that bewilders me. Uh, I think there's something like what sixty million, eighty million Christian Zionists in the United States. It's at unbelievable. Least, at least, uh, John Hagee said, um, "It's a match made in heaven. Fifty million conservative Christians standing alongside five five million Jewish Americans. It's a match made in heaven. Fifty against five. That's ten to one." even on his terms. Why then, if you don't mind me asking, Stephen, is Genesis 12 verse 3 so important? Genesis 12 verse 3. I'm glad you raised that one. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed. It's, it's ripped out of context and it's applied today uh, as if God is blessing America because America blesses Israel. When you go back to the text, it was a promise God made to Abraham and no one else. There's nothing in the text that says this applies in perpetuity. We must, as Christians, we should read the, New the Old Testament through the grid of the New Testament. The Old Testament's a bit like a lump of cheese. The New Testament's like a cheese grater. You grate the cheese through the cheese grater. It's still the same cheese, but it comes out different. So we read the Hebrew scriptures through the eyes of Jesus and the way in which the apostles interpret the teaching of Jesus in the light of the Old Testament. So, so for example, that promise is linked to the same promise he made a bit later to Abraham in Genesis 22. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. Now, again, Zionists will say, there you go. The seed is Israel and we are blessed. Gentiles are blessed because we support Israel and Israel uh, traces its origin back to Abraham. And Abraham was given this promise. The problem with that interpretation and that, by the way, there is only one correct interpretation of any passage. When someone says there are many interpretations, there are, but they're all wrong because there's only one interpretation that's correct. And that's what the author meant by what he said. If you said to me, Stephen, I want you to put your left hand up. You mean put your left hand up. You don't mean put your foot up or put your right hand up. And if I said, well, there are many ways of interpreting that. Well, there aren't. It's just put your left hand up. The interpretation is given very clearly in the New Testament. Let me just read it to you from Genesis 3, uh, Galatians 3. Paul says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. 
Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So in one verse in Galatians 3, we have the interpretation of Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, which is that Jesus is the one God promised would bless the world i.e. God promised Abraham that his seed, meaning Jesus, would be the one through whom the blessing would come, not Israel. Do you see that? So you can't go back and say, oh, no, it's about Israel, because the New Testament says, no, it's Jesus. Now, in the Schofield Bible, it says Israel. I, I don't have the Schofield Bible right in front of me, so you may be right, but I don't know. But that's certainly the way that Schofield's notes are interpreted because he insists that God has a separate plan for the Jewish people um, on the basis of promises like that from Genesis chapter 12. Um, Galatians goes on in chapter 3 verse 28 to say, you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. So if you think of a think of an hourglass, I'll, I'll, I'll show you one here. If you if you think in terms of an egg timer, an egg timer, yeah, the promises God made to Abraham can't be applied to today without going through Jesus. So the promises were fulfilled through Jesus, and as we trust in Jesus, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, we inherit the blessings. God promised Abraham, i.e. the gospel was for sharing, not for keeping one people. The point that I, I think I was trying to make, though, is that Schofield, throughout his reference Bible, continues in his notes to push the idea that it's always Israel that's being referenced, not so? Yes and no. What he does is he basically if you know if I'm, I'm, if you accept this as a, a vivid analogy he takes he takes the bible let's pretend this is the bible and he does this he says those passages are about the church and those passages are about israel so for example he says uh the sermon on the mount is not for the church the Sermon on the Mount is for the Jews. It's law because grace didn't come until Acts 2 and the birth of the church. You see how a rigid, a rigid theology is problematic. Mark 1 verse 1 says the beginning of the gospel. There's no footnote in Scofield's reference Bible because Mark 1 1 in his mind is not a new dispensation. But it is in the New Testament. The beginning of the gospel is the beginning of God's New Testament dispensation, promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Jesus. It's not even mentioned in Schofield's Bible, but he sticks the dispensation of grace from Acts chapter 2. So basically the gospels are not for Christians, which is absurd. Let me play, if you'll excuse the pun, let me play devil's advocate and say, well, so what? Uh, his, his, his reference Bible has influenced hundreds of millions of people around the world. Uh, is it, in what way is it bad? Well, it's a very destructive, pessimistic, apocalyptic theology. 
<clears throat> you know, one of the most influential books I read as a young Christian was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, where in the 1970s, Russia was the Antichrist. Russia's influence in Eastern Europe was atheistic, persecuted Christians, and it was taking over the world. And therefore the free West, the democratic West, America, Europe, Western Europe, and countries that allied with us are pitted against the Antichrist, against the evil one. Now, the danger of that kind of theology, mixing politics with theology, is that it demonizes whole countries. It justifies the use of nuclear weapons against Russia to protect God's chosen people. Um, and, and as communism declined in the 80s, 1980s, so a new Antichrist emerges. It's Islam. Uh, and then it was Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. Then it was uh, Osama bin Laden. You, you pick your demon figure and therefore it justifies your political uh, agenda. So, uh, for example, um, the Gulf War um, was linked to the tragedy of 9-11. There was no link between Iraq and 9-11. Um, George Bush Jr. wanted to call what became known as Operation Desert Storm. He wanted to call it Operation Infinite Justice. Think about that. That's theological terminology, infinite justice, to justify US foreign policy. He was persuaded not to use that term because it wouldn't go down well within the Islamic world. But, you know, we criticize Islamic leaders for using the Quran to justify jihad. But we find Christian leaders doing exactly the same thing. It's dangerous because it justifies uh, all manner of evil because we are the righteous empire. We are the chosen people and therefore our enemies can be easily demonized. And that's that's why we don't treat Palestinians as equal human beings to Israelis. We've elevated Jew Jews and, and Israel to a, a status above other nations. And that's very, very dangerous. Very dangerous indeed. So are you saying that the Schofield Reference Bible has had significant impact on American foreign policy? Well, there's no direct link. I'm not suggesting that um, even people like Ronald Reagan or Jimmy Carter read the read the Schofield Reference Bible before they went to bed at night or before breakfast in their quiet time. Uh, but it certainly influenced D.L. Moody and through D.L. Moody, the prophetic conference movement. Schofield, for example, founded the Dallas uh, Bible School, which became Dallas Theological Seminary, which has churned out hundreds, thousands of pastors um, who, who have this dispensational framework. It may not be as rigid as the one that Schofield um, developed. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's broadened out. Um, but his, his, his popular notes alongside the Bible text um, infiltrated or entered, if you like, the bloodstream of the Christian uh, the Christian uh, community around the world and, uh, and, and inspired a generation of um, political and religious leaders who are alive today, who are leaders of the church, who've inherited this theology. 
um, I just give you w one example. Uh, John Hagee talked uh, a few years ago about the need for a preemptive strike against Iran to fulfill Bible prophecy. Um, uh, you know, there are some appalling things that have been said by church leaders. Um, you know, who've been inspired by this theology. So it, it's not a direct link, but it's got into the bloodstream of uh, the evangelical world. Um, and, and through that has a mouthpiece today in many popular pastors and theologians. But how do you think it's so pervasive? What about it is so appealing? It's appealing because it's simple. It's dualistic, good guys, bad guys, church, Israel. It compartmentalizes things. Um, it says, don't worry about climate change. Don't worry about uh, the poor. Uh, you know, don't worry about development issues, humanitarian issues. That's for the liberal theologians. That's for the liberal Christians. Um, you know, we can stick to our uh, gospel sermons, our services, and uh, and we're in the end times. Jesus is coming back. Let's make sure we're ready, but let's make sure that we're on the right side. It, it's influenced our foreign policy because of this dualism. It's a Manichaean worldview, the good guys and the bad guys. And, um, and very conveniently, the bad guys can change. So we've wiped out Iraq. Iraq is no longer a threat. Now it's Iran. Um, and, 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 and it just, <laughs> I know I'm being cynical, but um, take what's been happening in Syria. You know, we basically decimated Syria uh, through their civil war by backing the, uh, the opponents to Assad's regime. U.S. soldiers are embedded in Syria against the will of the government. Where are they? They're in the oil-rich region of northeast Syria. Why does Israel want Gaza flattened, emptied of Palestinians? Because there's $500 billion worth of gas just off the coast. And if Gaza became part of a sovereign Palestinian state, the gas would be Palestinian. So I'm afraid that, uh, you know, the, the military complex, the... Um, the uh, you know the companies involved in in oil and as you know some of our your former presidents were heavily uh, involved in the oil business. There are there are financial incentives. Uh, Israel boasts about their weapons being field tested, field tested in Gaza. You know they sell their weapons to other countries based on uh, how they're using them in Gaza. So. You know, it's, it's, it's economics, it's politics, it's about survival. And the fact that the Bible can be used to appease my conscience, to justify my actions, um, all well and good. Why are Balfour and Napoleon important? <laughs> well, Napoleon in 1799 was the first world ruler to promise the Jews a homeland. Now, why on earth did Napoleon, who was wiping out the church in Europe, was blockading British seaports, 
was, uh, you know, putting his relatives on the thrones of Europe. Why was he interested in in promising the Jews their patrimony, as he called it, a homeland? Well, he was promising the Jews a home in the French Empire on condition that they backed the French against the British, because it, in 1799, Napoleon was fighting the British. And you may know that in any major war, governments have to borrow money to pay for the war. And until 1948, when the UN Declaration of Human Rights and the UN Conventions insisted that the acquisition of territory by war is inadmissible, meaning you can't go to war to steal your neighbor's land, before 1948, it was it was open season. You know, we took the land of our neighbours if they were weaker because we could. And that's, you know, why the British Empire expanded, because we had a good navy. We didn't have a, a large army, but we had a very powerful navy. And because of that navy, we could take over Cyprus. We could take over Hong Kong. We could take over, um, uh, you know, the states for a while, uh, you know, many countries around the world became part of the British Empire because even of our... even South Africa for a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've forgotten South Africa. So Napoleon wanted the Jewish bankers, the Rothschilds and others, he wanted their money and he was promising them a home in Palestine if they backed him. The irony was that Wellington was using the same bankers to fund the British war effort. Now, Napoleon lost. Um, but he set the bar, if you like. And from the 1830s, 1840s, as Britain began to uh, muscle up against the, <coughs> the uh, what became Germany, and, uh, you know, we had a number of other wars in, uh, in the Middle East, um, Britain became very interested in doing a deal with the fledgling Zionist movement, the bankers, if you like, at the beginning of the 20th century. And the Balfour Declaration mimics the declaration um, Napoleon made and was published in 1917-1917 to preempt a German declaration. Because in the middle of the Second First World War, Britain and Germany both were negotiating with Zionists as to who would get their support. The problem with the Balfour Declaration, which you asked about, is that it was entirely duplicitous. Um, in the declaration, which was first written by the Zionist movement for the British government, we promised the Jews a homeland in the British Empire. But we promised to protect the rights of the Arabs. The 90, 95% of the people in the Middle East were Arabs. We are promising them. And by the way, we're talking about the area, the real estate from Lebanon down to Egypt, right across to the Gulf. So we're talking about the Gulf states, what became Jordan, what is Israel, Palestine, Syria and Lebanon. That's what we're talking about. And we talk about Palestine. It was a big area territory. But in 1915, we'd already made a secret agreement with the French that after we've defeated Germany, we would split the Middle East between our two empires and the French would get Syria and Lebanon. That's why Lebanon speaks French. And the British would take what is Israel-Palestine, 
Jordan and the Gulf states. So we promised the land three ways. We promised in 1915 we were going to keep it to ourselves and the French. Then we promised the Jews they could have a home in, the, a land, a home in our empire and we promised to protect the rights of the Arabs. We had to do that because we needed the Arab armies to help defeat the Ottomans and the Germans. So come 1920s, 1930s, early 1940s, the Zionist movement and the Arabs were beginning to figure out that actually Britain wasn't going to give them what they wanted. We gave away Jordan in 1920-something to the Hashemites. They were a Saudi family. We gave them, it was very generous of Britain to give away Jordan to the Hashemites. France was enjoying its influence in Syria and Lebanon. Germany had obviously lost the war, First World War, so they were out of it. Um, but the, the Zionists and the Arabs were both frustrated with Britain, and so they began to attack Britain. And so Britain was caught in the middle between the Jews and the Arabs. And so we tried to get rid of Palestine. We gave it back to the UN, you know, the League of Nations. And in the end, the partition plan, which um, the partition plan, which uh, Britain proposed, I'm just going to draw it for you now. It's, it's, it's amazing when you look at it. Um, the partition plan was like that. This is the Mediterranean. This is Egypt. And, and you can figure out the rest. This is Egypt, Syria and, 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 Iraq, and Lebanon, the Mediterranean Sea, the Dead Sea, Jordan River. Basically, we promised um, the Arabs they would have the Galilee because it was predominantly Arab. They would have the West Bank and they'd have the Sinai. And the Jews would get uh, the near the East Bank of the river. They would get the, the, the fertile area to the north. They would get the coastal plain and they would get another chunk of the Sinai. Now, this is like a chessboard or a checkerboard. What observation can you make? It is that neither side is contiguous. You've got three black squares and three white squares. Why would Britain suggest that? Simple. So that both sides had to fight each other instead of fighting the British. And that's what happened. And so in 1948, <coughs> Israel got rid of all the Palestinians in northern Galilee and took all of that. And they took uh, all of the Sinai, uh, sorry, all of the Sinai, the, um, the desert region except Gaza. This bit was Gaza. And they took all of this. So from 1948 to 1967, the Palestinians had the West Bank and Gaza. And then in 1967, Israel took the West Bank and Gaza, settled it, annexed most of it. And so that's what we have today. We have Israel occupying all of Palestine under military control. And those areas of uh, Palestinian dense population, places like Janine, Ramallah, Nablus, Bethlehem, Jericho, they are ghettos surrounded with a wall and that's where Israel keeps the Palestinians locked in. So what we see in Gaza is merely a microcosm uh, of what's happening in the West Bank too. 
Um, and that's why uh, our fear is that what Israel's doing in Gaza will be replicated uh, in the West Bank too, unless, unless uh, the international community imposes sanctions or um, war crimes tribunals against what Israel's doing today. So that's where Balfour comes in. Uh, he was duplicitous, he created the boundaries, and we're living with the consequences. So based on that, does Israel have a right to exist? Good question. The UN, when it recognized Israel as a state in 1948, attached conditions. And the condition was the right of return for the 700,000 Palestinians expelled from what became Israel, the right of return. Israel's never allowed those Palestinians to return. The people who live in Gaza today, where are they from? They weren't, they didn't live in Gaza before 1948. They lived in Israel and they were expelled into Gaza. <clears throat> so Israel has, has never, um, never uh, fulfilled its obligations under international law. Um, and therefore, the question, should Israel exist as a sovereign nation, uh, is not an easy question to answer. Let me, let me explain this with a very simple analogy. Imagine you're a child, you're a spoilt child, you go to see your grandmother, grandfather, and they offer you the sweet jar, and they say, have a sweet, darling, and you put your hand in the jar, and you grab three sweets, and you can't get your hand out. You've got three sweets, but you can't enjoy them. You've got to get your hand out. How do you get your hand out? What are you going to have to do? You're going to have to let go of at least one of the sweets. Yeah? Otherwise, you'll never enjoy the sweets. Israel's got its hand in the cookie jar, and it's got three sweets. What are those three sweets? Israel claims that it's a democracy. It wants all the land, including the West Bank, the occupied territories, and it wants to be a Jewish, Jewish state. It wants all three. It wants to be a democracy, all the land, including the West Bank, and it wants to be a Jewish state. The problem is it can't have all three. It's got to give up one of them. So when you say, has Israel a right to exist? The answer is yes, of course it does, in the sense that the people living in Israel, Jews and Arabs, have a right to self-determination in the same way you do and I do. But it, the question is, what kind of self-determination? The three alternatives are this. The international community says Israel must give up the West Bank, go back to the 1967 borders, allow an independent, sovereign, contiguous Palestinian state, and it can be a Jewish democracy. So that Palestinians living in Israel can stay as a minority, or they can go and live in Palestine. Israeli settlers in Palestine can stay under a Palestinian administration, or they can go back and live in Israel. Jewish democracy because it's a majority of Jews. But will Israel give up the settlements, give up the West Bank? No. What's the alternative? Give up being a Jewish state. That's the one state solution. It means give Israeli Palestinians 
West Bank Palestinians equal rights as Israeli Jews. South Africa apartheid. It's, you know, there's still a long way to go in order for blacks and whites to be treated equally, but it's not an apartheid regime anymore. There is democracy and there is a constitutionally equal rights, even if they're not enjoyed and shared. But will Israel give up being a Jewish state? No, it's, it's moving more in that direction. What's the alternative? It's not a democracy, it's an apartheid state. So our role, the role of civil society, is to find a way to persuade Israel that it must choose one of those three. It must either give up being a Jewish state, that's the one-state solution, give up the West Bank, that's the two-state solution, or recognize it's not a democracy, it's an apartheid state, and we don't like apartheid. Does that make sense? So Israel has a right to exist, but it must choose one of these. And, and therefore the, um, the uh, case before the International Court of Justice is part of a process of pushing and persuading Israel to accept its international obligations to treat Palestinians equally, uh, as, uh, equally either as citizens of Israel-Palestine or allow them an independent sovereign state. But it cannot continue to be an apartheid regime committing genocide and ethnic cleansing against Palestinians. I see Christian pastors on stage preaching with big Israeli flags behind them in America. Yes, very much so. And, and you, 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 it's all about language and uh, propaganda terminology. So Zionist Christians typically, they look at what's happening in Gaza and they have a conscience like we do. They see hospitals bombed, churches bombed, schools, universities bombed. How do you justify that? Well, you say it's collateral damage. People get killed in wars. It's, it's tragic, but it's inevitable. But Israel has a right to defend itself. And that's kind of sacrosanct. No, Israel does not have a right to defend itself. Israel does not have a right because it's the occupying power. And in international law, it is those who are occupied who have the right to resist. The invader does not have the right to self-defense. If Israel has invaded the West Bank, has invaded Gaza, is bombing Gaza, it does not have the right to defend itself. It needs to get out. That is the way, you know, it has a right to defend its international borders, but it doesn't have a... So, you know, American soldiers in Syria do not have the right of self-defense because they are occupying that part of Syria. They've invaded it. You know, the right of self-defense only applies to... Uh, you know, your own land. You know, I have the right to defend my home from invaders, but I don't have the right to steal my neighbor's land and then defend myself when he attacks me. It's only Israel that says we have a right to defend ourselves. It's pushing it because it knows it doesn't have that right. Um, you know, it, 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 it's ironic. Um, you know, if, how can I put it? If, if we're having an argument and I'm winning the argument on the basis of facts, on the basis of truth. How do you get out of it? You either concede and say, you're right, I'm wrong, 
or you attack me, my motives, you try and make me out to be worse than you are, or you, you deflect attention. You deflect attention. So, you know, Israel's actions in Palestine and in Gaza are a reflection of its racism and prejudice toward Muslims, toward Arabs, and its desire to segregate, to, 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 to justify apartheid. So how do, you, how do you answer your critics? You accuse them of anti-Semitism. You accuse them of being racist. You, you shout louder because you know that people don't like to be accused of anti-Semitism. When ironically, and this is, this is controversial, I know, but I, I care about my Jewish friends and I worry that they will wrongly be criticized for what Israel's doing. Because when Israel's government says we represent the Jewish community worldwide, my Jewish friends say, not in my name. You don't, re you don't represent me. I repudiate what you're doing. You know, in the same way I, I might repudiate Britain's intervention and attack in Yemen because I wouldn't want to be associated uh, with the consequences. I remember I was in Jordan uh, during the Gulf War and when people figured out we were British, we were literally pinned to the wall and people said, do you support Saddam Hussein or George Bush? And it was, take your pick. Saddam Hussein or George Bush, and you knew that George Bush was the wrong answer. It's that dualism. You're either with us or you're against us. Uh, and, and, you know, that kind of dualism is very dangerous. Um, yes, I've, no I've noticed that. I've noticed exactly that. If you say, look, uh, I don't want to take sides. I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Muslim. Um, I think that innocent people on both sides dying is a tragedy. Suddenly I get accused of being anti-Semitic. Oh, yeah. why, why are you siding with terrorists? It can, you, you, have to, you have to pause, not react, unpack it, and work out why they're saying that. And they're saying it because they themselves are either feeling guilty or they're angry and they are just lashing out. Um, you know, for example, October the 7th, when the Hamas uh, 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 um, soldiers uh, got out of Gaza and attacked the kibbutz and killed uh, Israeli Jews, immediately there was stories of beheading babies, of rapes, of, and, 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 of, you know, and so on. It's transpired that virtually all of those stories were untrue, that they were exaggerated. Um, when you look at uh, the buildings that were demolished in the kibbutz, you realize that the Hamas terrorists didn't have heavy weapons. They had AK-47s. They had light weapons. How were those buildings demolished? They were demolished by the Israeli military through their tanks and their, their aircraft because they thought there were terrorists in those buildings. We must destroy them, even if there are Israelis inside. You know, even Israeli officials have admitted that. So, um, well, I'm, uh, the reason I raised that is because immediately I had Christians criticizing me for not criticizing Hamas, <clears throat> even though I was critical of all forms of terrorism, critical of all 
attacks on civilians. It's you know it's a war crime to attack civilians. It's it's uh, it's unacceptable. Mm. Uh, but there was a knee-jerk reaction, uh, and yet my friends are silent about the. 20,000, 23,000, whatever, 30,000 Palestinians have been obliterated in Gaza as a consequence of the Israeli bombing, indiscriminate bombing. Uh, you know, selective amnesia when it comes to the suffering of those people we don't agree with or we don't like. In your opinion, is Hamas a terrorist organization? <laughs> if I deny it, it causes problems for me there'd be a knock at my door because Britain has declared Hamas to be a terrorist organization. Um, Hamas is a terrorist organization in that it uses, employs terror as a means of fulfilling its agenda. Um, I, I, I was once in southern Lebanon, but when, when one of my books, uh, Christian Zionism, came out in Arabic, um, the, the people who hosted me said, we want you to meet someone from Hezbollah. And you don't say no. Um, so I went to this meeting with a, 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 one of the leaders of Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And we had a half an hour together and uh, con conversed about Christian Zionism and about um, many issues. His last question, it's always the last question. You know, you're in a conversation. Oh, by the way, let me ask you, you know, that's the reason you're there. That's the most important question. He said, Stephen, what would you advise Hezbollah? And I, I, I paused and I thought, you're a military leader committed to using violence, albeit you're defending Lebanon from Israeli aggression, but you have Israeli captives um, and I would not justify your actions. Uh, and I'm a Christian minister, a peacemaker, and you're asking me for advice. So I said, release the Israeli captives. Don't trade them like animals. Don't barter them. You worship a compassionate, merciful God. Show compassion and mercy. You've beaten the Israelis militarily. Beat them morally too. Incite them to retaliate with kindness and generosity and compassion, not uh, retaliate with, with more death and killing. So Yes, Hamas is a terror organization, but the Israeli administration is a terror organization as well. We tend to limit the term terrorism to rebels, to individuals, to uh, groups of people like ISIS or uh, the Taliban. We are reluctant to use the term terrorism for a nation, for a state. And yet one can only say that the Israeli uh, actions in Gaza constitute terrorism. It's terrified two million people. It's it's forced 1.8 million people out of their homes. It's destroyed 80% of the homes in Gaza. It's destroyed universities, schools, hospitals. It's targeted them, albeit because they allege Hamas is inside. But, you know, they've gone after whole buildings, killing 50, 60, 100 people to get one. Um, you know, that's terrorism. So I think we need to use the word terrorism in a broader term, broader, broader sense than uh, it's generally used today. If there was no oil in the Middle East, I don't think we'd be be having wars there. We wouldn't be, um, we, you know, we would not have been in Iraq. We would not have wiped out much of, um, uh, uh, of the Middle East. So 
I think oil and economy and 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 those raw raw materials, those resources, are a more influential uh, factor or motivation. Uh, but in terms of Israel, um, it's very hard to unpack because we're dealing with the desire to have Europeans and Americans living in the Middle East um, in what is today Israel. Um, uh, I, I accept the right of Israel to exist as a sovereign nation, uh, but it has to choose between the one state or the two state. Um, and, and that's why we advocate for justice and peace, particularly for the Palestinians. Does it say anywhere in the Bible that, that we must stand with Israel? No, no. I think we should uh, we should pray for and care for Jewish people, but we should also care for and pray for widows, orphans, um, those who are marginalised, those who are abused. Um, if we go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, and the word "good" doesn't appear there, um, there's a little little sentence in the middle of that story that unlocks it. And unless we understand it, we don't understand the story at all. We assume that the guy in the road, the victim, is what nationality? He's a Jew because the Samaritan stops. And Jesus talks about the Samaritan stopping for the victim. OK, we make that assumption. You know, the rabbi comes down the road, the scribe, the uh, 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 and but it's the Samaritan who stops. So we think this is a, a lovely story about stopping for your enemy. You know, he shows compassion. It's not what Jesus actually said, because Jesus leaves a little, uh, it's, you know, you know, an oyster. The reason you get a pearl is because there's a little bit of gray, a grain of sand in the middle of the oyster and it tries to get rid of it by covering it and it eventually covers it until you have a pearl. That's where the pearl comes from. There's that grain of sand that irritates in the middle of the parable, and it's this. Jesus says that the victim, they beat him up, and they left him, stripped him of his clothes, and left him half dead. He was unconscious, and he was naked. Now, why does Jesus add that to the story? That is the key. Because it meant everyone who came down that road could not tell who the guy was from his clothes or from his accent. You're walking down the street in South Africa or America. If the guy's in rags and he's on the ground and there's a, an empty wine bottle next to him, will you stop? If the guy's wearing an Armani suit, you know, worth a thousand dollars and he's wearing shoes that are worth $500 and he's got a briefcase and he's on the ground, will you stop? You're more likely to stop because of his clothing, because of who you think he is. Jesus strips all that away. He says, will you stop for a human being? Not for one of us, not for one of them. He's a human being. Jesus brings it right down to that core not one of ours, not one of theirs, but a human being created in the image and likeness of God. That's for me the key to, um, to motivate us today. It's to see in the eyes of everyone, including our enemies, including the stranger, is this a person God has brought me in touch with to bless rather than to curse, to be a blessing. So yes, we should bless 
Israel. But we just remember Israel uh, is a nation of many nationalities. They're not all descended from Abraham. Most Jews today are not descended from Abraham. Uh, just give you one verse. The story of Esther. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Esther in the Bible. Um, Esther 8 verse 17, at the end of God delivering the Jews from their enemies, Esther 8 verse 17 says, and many people of other nationalities became Jews. Many people of other nationalities. How many nationalities? Many. Many people. It means that surrounding nations saw what God had done among the Jews and said, we want in too. We want to join the winning team. Do you see? You know, to the point where at the time of Jesus, it was the Gentiles who flooded into the temple. It was it was the the court of the Gentiles that Jesus clears out the money changers. Why? He says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And that was the problem because the the Pharisees, the religious leaders didn't want the Gentiles around. They wanted to keep the temple for themselves. And that's what Israel's doing today. It wants the land, it wants Jerusalem, and it wants the temple for themselves. The Bible says, no, the land was to be shared. Jerusalem is to be shared. And you don't need a temple because Jesus is our temple. And the church of all nations is the living temple. How can I uh, follow your work, read your books, that sort of thing? Well, I've got two websites, uh, stephensizer.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-I-Z-A-R.com. And if you look under books, you can find the text of my books. Um, this book looks at the history, theology and politics of Christian Zionism. And this book looks more at how we deconstruct their theology and how we should read the Bible. Uh, you can access all the text on my websites. Um, and if people are interested in Schofield in particular, just go to my website and in the search at the bottom right hand corner, type in Schofield, it'll take you to the article. But if you're more interested in what we're doing now in terms of peacemaking, conflict resolution, mediation, the website is peacemakers.ngo peacemakers plural dot ngo and that's the charity that i direct that needs funding um that advocates for uh peace and reconciliation in various parts of the world but thank you jeremy it's been a delight to share in this uh, uh interview with you if you enjoyed this podcast please visit supportgerm.com 